Chapter 5, Showing Forth the Power and Knowledge of Zion, Abraham in Egypt. Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, that you may be instructed more perfectly in the things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and perplexities of the nations and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of the countries and of kingdoms, that ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again. Doctrine and Covenants 88, 78 through 80. A Mighty Cedar Some three years after Abraham and his followers arrived in the Promised Land, it was struck by famine. A modern writer had observed that for a person of Abraham's day, famine had the same resonance of terror as cancer or AIDS today. A modern American can find a 24-hour supermarket packed with food within a 10-minute drive, so he has difficulty imagining the dread evoked in other times and places at the prospect of death by starvation. What made matters worse for Abraham was the fact that the last time he had seen famine years earlier, it had come in the wake of society's failed attempt to execute him, and therefore appeared to be a vindication of his righteousness and God's protection of him, that same God at whose command Abraham now had now come to this land of promise. And in giving that command, God had announced himself to Abraham as the controller of the world, at whose word the sea is calmed and mountains moved in an instant, suddenly. Surely, then, it would be a small thing for God to simply preserve or remove this famine. One of the patterns of Abraham's life was devout prayer for relief in the face of difficulty, and there is no reason to believe that he did otherwise in this instance. But the famine continued in all of its severity, blighting crops and fruit, killing animals, and finally threatening the lives of Abraham and his community. The heavens from which God had spoken so often to his friend Abraham now seemed bolted shut, another allowing neither rain nor explanatory revelation. How could Abraham explain this to his followers, who had exercised faith in him as their inspired leader? Had God forgotten them after they had obediently come to this promised land? Why weren't Abraham's prayers answered? And what about God's promise to bless Abraham and make his name great? The unfolding events seem to be doing just the opposite. But we read no words of complaint or questioning. The very purpose of the famine, according to Rashi, was to test him whether he would have qualms about God's promises. Other Jewish sources note that after having un unquestioningly complied with God's command, Abraham should have been pelted with garlands, honored and revered. Instead, his journey to the Promised Land appeared to be a fiasco. Abraham should have been protected, but no. Abraham did not question nor complain. He murmured not, and neither protested nor assailed God's justice. For Abraham, it was yet another disappointment, another challenge in a life that seemed to be one of trial after another. The trials of Abraham is how the learned Rabbi Eleazar wrote of the life of the patriarch, which is exactly how one might write of the life of Joseph Smith. And for both men, it seemed that God was polishing his finest gemstones. I am like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain, said the prophet Joseph. And the only polishing I get is when some corner gets rubbed off by coming into contact with something else, striking with accelerated force. All hell knocking off a corner here and a corner there. Thus, I will become as smooth as a polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty. So it was with Abraham. Rabbinic legend claims that among the stones that David used in his sling to slay Goliath, 
On the first stone was written the name of Abraham. Abraham met his trials with patience. In every test to which the Lord subjected him, says Jubilees, he had been found faithful, and he was not impatient, nor was he slow to act. For he was faithful and loved the Lord. It was this love that sustained him. Rabbinic sources tell that all of his many trials he received with love, and stood firm in them all, thereby demonstrating the extent of his love of God. In fact, Abraham showed his love for God by responding to his tests with deeds of loving kindness, thereby utilizing each test as a tool for spiritual and personal growth. Abraham is the great exam example of the path to sainthood available to anyone who becomes full of love and in a childlike manner becomes submissive, meek, humble, patient, and willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. And with that love came vision. As Nibley points out, what keeps him going? He has a vision of something else. He knows something else besides the regular routines of the world. What did he know? John Taylor observed that although Abraham was tried in almost every possible way, yet he continued faithful, and inspired by the spirit of the living God in possession of the principles of revelation, holding the keys of the everlasting priesthood, which unlocked the mysteries of the kingdom of God, Abraham looked forward and backward and felt that he was part of the great program which God had designed to accomplish in regard to the earth. His vision and commitment were shared by Sarah. No murmuring word escaped her tongue when she could have easily complained of having left the goodly land of Haran for the famine-stricken famine place. Such silence in the record speaks loudly, as she above anyone else had cause, even the right, to protest. For if Abraham had been told to come here by the Lord, she had only been told by Abraham. She might easily have complained also of the fact that despite Abraham's report of God's promise of posterity, she yet continued childless. But her love for her husband was too great, her commitment to her co covenants too strong, her faith in the Almighty too unyielding, to allow her to criticize or complain. In the words of the learned Muslim scholar Al-Tabari, Sarah was one of the best human beings that ever existed. She would not disobey Abraham in any way for which God honored her. In good times and bad, Sarah consistently lived the law of Zion, faithfully maintaining that unity of heart that is always Zion's crowning feature. From Sarah, says a Jewish source, people learn strength and constancy no matter what the odds. Together, Abraham and Sarah are, in the words of Erastus Snow, models of noble character, purity, and purpose, and superior integrity to God, whom they hesitated not to obey at all hazards even to the sacrifice of that which was nearest and dearest unto them but having obeyed they now faced the agonizing reality that there was simply not enough food in the famine-stricken land making it impossible for them to remain nor could they return to haran or ur which were also afflicted by famine and from out of which god had ordered them only one possibility loomed egypt the gift of the nile where crops depended not on the vagaries of rainfall, but on the annual flooding of the Nile. And so, Abraham tells in his autobiography, I concluded to go down into Egypt. Concluded, he says, implying that this was a deliberate decision he alone had arrived at, and probably not without some difficulty. For this was the land of Pharaoh, whose evil priest had once raised the knife to sacrifice Abraham in a pagan rite. 
Pharaoh, the, the powerful monarch who faithfully claimed Abraham's true patriarchal authority and whose kingdom was built on an idolatrous imitation of the true order of Zion on earth. All this must have given Abraham pause as he contemplated journeying to Egypt and, consistent with his practice, he must have made this a matter of fervent prayer. Yet we read of no divine disclosure on this occasion. Apparently, Abraham was left to work this out on his own. The Zohar tells that God purposely refrained from telling Abram to go down to Egypt and allowed him to go of his own accord. But the experience was necessary and part of the Lord's plan for Abraham, for if he had not gone down into the Egypt and been tested there, his portion would not have been in the Lord. In fact, the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer expressly reports that getting Abraham into Egypt was God's purpose in sending the famine. If the famine in Ur had been sent to vindicate Abraham, this one was sent to bless him. Although such blessings are difficult to recognize at the moment, the famine became, in Abraham's own description, very grievous, making it impossible for Abraham and his people to remain. Sometimes even with his most faithful saints, for their own good, the Lord guides them by means of circumstances without disclosing his plan. The trip to Egypt may have taken weeks, as they made their way slowly by inland route through the Negev Desert, probably via the Way of the Wells. Along the way, there was apparently settlements where some provisions might be bought. A group of Semites traveling to Egypt during this era was not unusual, as seen in the famous Benai Hassan mural showing just such a group around the time of Abraham. Arriving at the border at the famed Wall of the Ruler, which consisted of a series of fortresses, Abraham's group camped and prepared to pass through the customs on the morrow. The border of Egypt, lack land of plenty, would have been a welcome sight for people fleeing from a famine-stricken land. Only now did the Lord again speak to his servant Abraham, but what was said must have seemed perplexing. Behold, Sarai, thy wife, is a fair woman, a very fair woman, to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass... When the Egyptians shall see her, they will say, She is his wife, and they will kill you, but they will save her alive. Therefore, see that you do now, do on this wise. Let her say unto the Egyptians, She is thy sister, and thy soul shall live. In the Genesis Apocryphon version of the story, the divine warning comes in the form of a dream that Abraham has and recounts to Sarah on the very night of his entry into Egypt. And I, Abram, had a dream in the night of my entering into the land of Egypt, and I saw in my dream that there was a cedar and a date palm, which was very beautiful, and some men came intending to cut down and uproot the cedar, but leave the date palm by itself. Now the date palm remonstrated and said, Do not cut down the cedar, for we both from one family, or the two of us grow from but a single root. So the cedar was spared with the help of the date palm, and it was not cut down. That night I awoke from my dream and said to Sarai, my wife, I have had a dream and I am frightened by this dream. She said unto me, Tell me that your dream that I might know it too. So I began to tell her this dream, and I made it known to her the meaning of this dream and said, Who will seek to kill me and to spare you? Now this is all the favor that you must do for me. Wherever we shall be, say about me, he is my brother. Then I shall live, and you, and with your help and my life, will be saved because of you. They will seek to take away, uh, take you away from me, and to kill me. And Sarai wept at my words that night, and Pharaoh, uh, Zoan, so that Sarai no longer wished to go toward Egypt, lest anyone should see her. It is yet another window into the soul of Sarah that, an, although she wept and 
even expressed her desire not to proceed to Egypt, yet we read not a word of contention or criticism on her part. Always she was Sarah the faithful, the loyal, the loving wife, and the comparison of these particular trees, the palm and the cedar, with Sarah and Abraham is a powerful statement about their character. For according to the Psalms, the righteous flourish like the palm trees, and grow like the cedars of Lebanon. The Midrash, commenting on the story of Abraham in Egypt, explains how the righteous are like the cedars and palms, just as the palm tree and the cedar produce neither crooked curves nor growths. So the righteous have no crookedness of character. Just as the shadow of the palm and the cedar is cast afar, so is the reward of the righteous far away in the future world. And just as the heart of the palm and the cedar is directed upward, so are the hearts of the righteous directed toward the Holy One. Abraham's dreams reflect the high demand for the precious cedar, the Cedrus Libani, or Cedar of Lebanon, which was the most sought-after wood in the ancient Near East. Adorned with bluish-green needles, the branches grow straight out of the tree, develops into a distinctive and majestic pyramidal shape, attaining uh, magnificent heights upwards of 100 feet. The finely-grained, reddish-colored wood is not only fragrant, but strong, straight, and extremely durable, as well as resistant to rot and insects, making it, anciently, the coveted wood of choice for everything from furniture to coffins, and on a larger scale for ships and large and important buildings. With good reason does the modern flag of Lebanon bear the image of its famous tree, which from earliest times constituted an important trade item and figured predominantly in the rise of the ancient Near East. The original great cedar forest covering the mountainous Lebanon and surrounding regions were extensively exploited by the successive dominant powers to float their imperial navies and erect their great edifices, everything from Solomon's temple to Pharaoh's palace, but Pharaoh had to import the cedars, for while Egypt was nearly self-sufficient in natural resources, the major exception was timber from Lebanon and Syria. Yeah. It is with some irony, then, that the Lord would later, speaking through Ezekiel, compare Pharaoh himself to a cedar of Lebanon, of great height and beautiful in his greatness. The tree described by Ezekiel is also a most unusual tree, whose roots penetrated down to the abundant water of the deep, and whose top towered high above the trees of the field and ascended even among the clouds, and in whose shade all great nations lived. According to one scholar, while at first it seems to be a tree from Lebanon that is being dis depicted, the description soon broadens out beyond earthly proportions and sketches the picture of the great world tree, that mythological cosmic tree offering shelter and protection for all life on earth. But as the Ezekiel passage and the Book of Abraham both show, Pharaoh's claim to such grandeur was merely pretense, as Abraham well knew. Abraham possessed of the authentic records knew Pharaoh's secret, that his authority was stolen and his glory simulated. Nor did the other powerful monarchs of the near ancient Near East possess the true patriarchal authority to preside over the human race, even though they would compare their rule to the qualities of a cedar, expressing the hope that their reign would be as a benevolent and sheltering as the majestic tree. Such royal symbolism associated with the cedar was very ancient, going back to the earliest traditions of ancient Near Eastern royalty in imitation of the deity, who as he sat on the throne was also to be holding a scepter of cedar, a derivative of the tree of life and indicative of his royal status in heaven and on earth. Hence, when the seventh antediluvian king in Mesopotamian tradition, Enoch, had been taken up and enthroned by the gods, he was handed a scepter of cedar. 
Enoch's patriarchal authority was now held by Abraham, who was the mighty cosmic cedar that Pharaoh only pretended to be. Commenting on Abraham's experience in Egypt, the Zohar expressly compares him to a cedar that is preeminent and all sit under him. The world is supported upon one righteous one, as it is written, the righteous is the foundation of the world. Abraham's patriarchal authority was to establish what the Lord in Latter-day Scripture has called Zion, a defense and a refuge from the storm. Zion itself is the great cosmic cedar offering refuge and protection to all mankind. The wisdom of heaven and earth. Ironically, to preserve his own life, the righteous Abraham was now being commanded to violate one of his fundamental principles, that of perfect honesty, in his dealings with his fellow men, by asking Sarah to represent herself as his sister. Or was it a violation? If Jubilees is correct, which seems to be vindicated by the later statement in Genesis, Sarah was in fact his sister, the daughter of his father, but through a different wife. Or as other traditions hold, if she was his niece or cousin, she still could, according to ancient custom, properly be called his sister. The word sister could also be used in both Hebrew and Egyptian as a term of endearment, meaning sweetheart or wife. The Zohar mentions yet another dimension. Abraham always called her sister because she was attached to her. He was attached to her inseparably, in a spiritual bond that the world did not understand, apparently a reference to eternal marriage. In some, as Augustine stated, when Abraham called his wife his sister, he told no lie. But in the context that the Lord was commanding, it would also result in a deception, masking her relationship as his wife. Earlier in his life, according to the Quran, Abraham had prayed, O Lord, let me be honest in all I say to others. The Zohar insists that Abraham's words were always truth. Among all who knew him, Abraham had built a reputation for uncompromising integrity. Now he was being asked by God not only to veer from that course, but to involve his wife in the duplicity, which would further require the compl complicity of his followers, those who honored him as their righteous prophet and patriarch. Jasher reports that Abraham asked not only Sarah, but also all those who accompanied them to say that Sarah was his sister. But it was the Lord's command reminding us of his command to young Nephi, who hesitated before complying and taking the life of Laban. Whatever God requires is right, said Joseph Smith, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire. In the short term, however, some commandments can be confusing, and Abraham was so troubled on this occasion that he apparently arose in the night and built an altar and offered sacrifice to offer up one of the remaining animals after suffering through famine conditions was a sacrifice indeed, but Abraham was equal to the task. Sacrifice was, says Hugh Nibley, the theme of Abraham's life, which has everything to do with us. We must be called upon to make some sacrifices indeed to please God. We must be willing to sacrifice all the way, taking Abraham for our model. Abraham then, according to his own account of the book of Abraham, consulted the Urim and Thummim, apparently trying to see if they should continue on into Egypt. But he saw instead was a close-up view of the stars. Even as he heard the voice of the Creator begin to explain his creations and their organization in relation to the throne of God. Jewish legend echoes this event in reporting that Abraham possessed a stone through which he gazed at the heavens, a kind of super-telescope, about which he is reported to have said, I have looked through my crystal to see the stars. But, as further related in the book of Abraham, somehow the scene changed, and Abraham now found himself face to face with the Creator, who, as Abraham tells, 
said unto me, My son, my son. And his hand was stretched out. Behold, I will show you all these. And he put his hand upon my eyes. And I saw those things which his hands had made, which were many, and they multiplied before mine eyes, and I could not see the end thereof. We are reminded of the statement of Galileo, the first human to peer at the heavens through a telescope, which, although rudely primitive, was today's standards, by today's standards, revealed a multitude of stars that left him in utter amazement. You will behold through the telescope, Galileo recorded, a host of other stars which escaped the unassisted sight, so numerous as to be almost beyond belief. Galileo's view, of course, was nothing compared to what Abraham was now being shown. Having earlier in life discovered the Creator by his starry creations, Abraham now had the privilege of learning about those creations from their Creator, who allows Abraham to see his handiwork and even see the great stars nearest God's own residence. Abraham <clears throat> is that certain unique man spoken of in the Orphic hymn whose insights pierced the mysteries of the stars and the heavenly sphere. John Taylor insisted that Abraham knew more about the cosmos than is known in the world today, a statement that is surely still no exaggeration, despite the incredible modern advancements in astronomy. Abraham further tells that it was in the night time when the Lord spake these words unto me, I will multiply thee, and thy seed after thee, like unto these, and if thou canst count the number of sands, so shall be the number of thy seed. This incident, not reported in Genesis, is the first time that the Lord compares Abraham's future posterity to the stars. No metaphor could have been more meaningful or moving to Abraham, whose early years had been spent with stargazers and star worshippers, and whose very discovery of the Creator had come by reflecting on the starry heavens. Now the Creator, who has just personally shown to Abraham something of the vastness of those heavens, with their seemingly infinitude of stars, numbers too great for the mortal man to begin to fathom, makes a breathtaking announcement that the vastness of Abraham's posterity would match that of the stars. Abraham does not recount what his feelings were upon hearing this, but to use the word overwhelming may well be an understatement. Such matters are simply beyond the ken of mortals without divine revelation. We can read and reflect, but fully fathoming Abraham's experience must necessarily await our own qualification for those same blessings. Abraham continues his account by relating that the Lord said unto me, Abraham, I will show these things unto thee before ye go into Egypt, that ye may declare all these words. Abraham now understood that he must continue on into Egypt, even if he didn't understand why the Lord had directed that Sarah say she was his sister. As the Lord continued the lesson, he compared the stars to the spirits, symbolism apparently also known to Abraham's forefathers. The Lord then showed Abraham the host of premortal spirits, including many of the noble and great ones, who were good and were chosen before they were born to be rulers in the church of God. The Lord then said, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. The passage is reminiscent of the Quranic verse in which God tells Abraham that I have appointed you a leader of mankind, and reminiscent of Jewish Kabbalistic source that states, when Abraham our father understood, probed, thought, and was successful, the Blessed Holy One revealed himself to him, declaring to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you emerged from the womb, I sanctified you. I have made you a prophet for the nations. 
According to the book of Abraham, he was further shown the presentation of the great plan of God's children in order to prove them, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So those who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Among all of the vast multitudes of God's children that Abraham saw, he alone was now being honored with this vision of the pre-mortal life, and this precious truth that the primary purpose of mortality was to test the obedience of God's children. Is it coincidence that the foundational purpose of mortality as a test of obedience would be revealed to this consummately obedient mortal? Abraham saw Satan's rebellion and expulsion, followed by the creation in which Abraham and other great and noble spirits participated. Similarly, Jewish tradition held that God called him his partner in creation, and that Abraham wrote down what God had revealed to him about the creation in a work called the Book of Creation, or Safir Yetzira, echoing the fact that Abraham's record known as the Book of Abraham contains not only a creation account, but also facsimile too, an astronomical document of deep significance. Abraham had now been taught firsthand what he had only read about in the writings of Enoch, namely, a knowledge of the beginning of creation and also of the planets and of the stars. It was all part of Abraham's continuing quest to acquire ever more and more knowledge from above. As we have seen, part of this quest was through the miraculous means God had provided him, the Urim and Thummim. Talmudic tradition similarly reports that God blessed Abraham and delivered to him a rare stone in which he could read a man's destiny, and that Abraham used this rare crystal and studied it with great care. But Abraham also sought knowledge directly through prayer. Teach me, show me, Abraham prayed on one occasion, while on another occasion he implored, My Lord, grant me wisdom. Abraham asked and received revelation upon revelation, teaching him about history, astronomy, theology, and science. He also ardently searched the scriptures, as well as the wisdom of the world. Jewish tradition remembers Abraham as one who possessed great genius, including the wisdom of a just man and a fiery language of a prophet or high priest. He spoke every tongue and mastered every art, and was the greatest scientist of his day. He gained such wisdom that his advice and knowledge were widely sought out, and he became admired as a man of extreme sagacity, gifted not only with high intelligence, but with power to convince his hearers on any subject which he undertook to teach. Referencing fragments of a 2nd century BC Jewish history, a modern scholar notes, It is the figure of Abraham who spreads astronomical learning from his native land to Phoenicia and then to Egypt. And among both Jewish and non-Jewish authors of the ancient world, Abraham was widely regarded as a great sage. In Sufi tradition, Abraham personifies knowledge, one of the essential divine attributes. According to Nibley, if we were to make a list of the greatest minds of the last 40 centuries, Abraham must surely make a strong bid for number one. Abraham personifies the Lord's command to Latter-day Saints to seek, both forth, uh, seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Seek not for riches, but for wisdom, and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you. Abraham further exemplifies the Lord's latter-day command to prepare for missionary service by seeking learning, by study, and also by faith. <clears throat> About not only the gospel and the kingdom of God, but also things both in heaven and in the earth, under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on all the land, and a knowledge also of countries and kingdoms. 
Accordingly, we follow the example of Adam and Abraham, notes Hunibli, ever seeking more light and knowledge. Indeed, it is the merit and the seed of Abraham that above all people they treated, uh, they treasure the things of the mind. Sarah's Great Trial Knowing that he should proceed on his journey, Abraham entered the land of the sons of Ham, Egypt, long fabled for its wisdom and learning, having been originally founded by a righteous king who was blessed by Noah with the blessings of the earth and wisdom, but cursed as pertaining to the priesthood. That original pharaoh even sought earnestly to imitate the ancient order established by the fathers, the order of Zion. But later pharaohs would falsely claim the patriarchal right of rulership that Abraham possessed. Abraham was entering the kingdom of the imitators of Zion. As he passed through customs at one of the fortresses along the Egyptian frontier, perhaps the station called the Way of Horus, Abraham heeded the warning about Sarah and apparently sought to shelter her from the Egyptian eyes. A very widespread tradition recounts that he had her hidden inside a locked chest or trunk, and when the customs official insisted that Abraham pay tax on the contents of that chest, he agreed. The problem was that the official kept insisting on increasing the tax, accusing Abraham of concealing ever more valuable goods, and Abraham repeatedly agreed to pay the higher amount. The official finally became so suspicious that he demanded that the chest be opened. Sarah arose in all her loveliness, by far the most beautiful woman ever to enter the kingdom. But according to the Genesis Apocryphon, it was not the border incident that got them in trouble, for they were able to enter Egypt and live under, live there undisturbed. In which city did he live? During the 12th Egyptian dynasty, Abraham would likely have resided in or near Memphis in Lower Egypt in the north, and an alternate or secondary capital that was much closer to the major capital of Thebes, far up the Nile in Upper Egypt. Whichever city it was, we are told that he lived there for some five years before things took an unexpected and dangerous turn. The Genesis Apocryphon describes a scene in which Abraham is instructing three visitors from the Egyptian royal court in wisdom and truth. In that instruction, as Abraham relates, I read in front of them the book of the words of Enoch. Abraham was reading to them, in other words, from the records of Zion. He was preaching the gospel in God, as God had revealed it through his holy prophets. But when the visitors saw Sarah, they were smitten with her beauty and returned to report to Pharaoh, who, as a king and God, omnipotent and unquestioned in his realm, immediately sent retainers to bring her to the palace. Such a practice was not unusual to judge from a papyrus that tells of a pharaoh who, acting on the advice of his princes, sent soldiers to seize a beautiful woman and exile her husband. Abraham reports in the Genesis Apocryphon that Pharaoh was amused at all her beauty and took her for himself as a wife. He wanted to kill me, but Sarai said to the king, He is my brother. I, Abraham, was spared on her account and was not killed. Then continues Abraham, I wept bitterly, I, Abraham, and Lot, my nephew, with me, on that night when Sarai was taken away before, from me by force. That night I prayed, I entreated, and I asked for mercy. In my sorrow I said, as my tears ran down my cheeks, Blessed are you, O God, most high, my Lord, for all ages. For you are Lord and master over all, and have power to mete out justice to all the kings of the earth. Now I lodge my complaint with you, my Lord, against the Pharaoh Zoan the king of Egypt, because my wife has been taken away from me by force. Mete out justice to him for me, and show forth your great hand against him and against all his house. May he not be able to defile my wife tonight, that it may be known about you, my lord, that you are the lord and king of all the earth, of all the kings of the earth. And I wept and talked to no one. 
Would he have wept so for his own life, asked Nibley, which he had so often been willing to risk? Abraham proved time and again that he would gladly risk his life in the cause of truth and to protect his fellow beings, for whom he bore such love that he is remembered in Jewish tradition as the very personification of empathetic loving kindness, the spring whence flowed compassion to the world. Now, however, to obey God, Abraham was forced to stand by silently and without protest as Egyptian emissaries took his beloved wife to Pharaoh's harem. This severe test required the greatest faith yet in the patriarch's life. Even so, explains the Zohar, Abraham firmly trusted in God that he would allow no harm to come to Sarai, as it is written. The righteous are bold as a lion. But Abraham was not only not the only one being tested. According to the first century Christian scholar Ephraim the Syrian, God placed Sarah in this situation because it was her trial, for he willed that she should be examined and tested um, in a woman's task just as Abraham had been tasked, had been in a man's task. It was right that both of them be tried. And as Hugh Nibley had pointed out, Sarah's trial can be described as the test of the lion's couch. For the royal bed, like the royal altar, on which Abraham had once lain, was a lion couch. The trial placed Sarah in jeopardy of her very life, for if she honored both Abraham's request by feigning maidenhood and her marital vows by refusing Pharaoh's advances, she faced certain death. The alternate was simply to accept her new role with the dazzling wealth and influence, for the pomp and luxury and utter magnificence of the royal palace ever impressed on a native and foreigner the glistening majesty of the pharaoh of Egypt. Indeed, this was the very era when the cult of the pharaoh, the god-king, was given monumental expression of the grandeur unsurpassed in the ancient Near East, and what mighty pharaoh intended with Sarah, according to Nachmanides, was nothing less than to marry her and install her as the new queen of Egypt. As Nibley notes, there was nothing in the world to keep her from exchanging her hard life with Abraham for a life of unlimited ease and influence as Pharaoh's favorite, except her loyalty to her husband. Abraham is abiding by the law of God. The whole question now is, will Sarah abide by the law of her husband? And she proved that she would, even if necessary, at the risk of her life. In the words of Ephraim the Syrian, she did not exchange her sojourning husband for the king. Not even the dazzling wealth and power of Egypt's royal throne could persuade her to forsake her covenants and loyalty to God and to her husband. But it was not only Sarah's life that was at stake, but also the future of the entire chosen race to be born through her. Ironically, her test involved the virtue she had so zealously protected ever since coming to the licentious land of Egypt, where from the start she had guarded herself against immorality. Now, despite the severity of the trial, she did not grumble against God, but rather prayed mightily to him. Great is the power, prayer of a righteous woman, and greater still the power of united prayer. As Abraham was praying with at least equal fervor outside the palace, God heard and answered. Genesis reports that the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, or, as other translations have it, mighty plagues, or terrible plagues, so that, as told in the Genesis Apocryphon, Pharaoh was unable to approach her. The several plagues included not only the violent and virulent disease, but also, as Josephus mentions, civil strife that threatened Pharaoh's power. The mighty kingdom of Egypt seemed to be suddenly unraveling at the seams. Meanwhile, Jewish tradition tells that God sent an angel to protect and comfort Sarah, even as had happened with Abraham years before in his hour of great need. Rabbinic tradition mentions that the night that Sarah was taken to the palace was Passover night, thereby foreshadowing the time when again Pharaoh's house would be plagued for the benefit of Sarah's descendants. Pharaoh had questioned not only Sarah, but also Lot about Abraham's relationship with Sarah, and Lot had loyal 
tightly held to the same story. As soon as Pharaoh believed that Abraham was merely Sarah's brother, Abraham became the recipient of royal favor. Pharaoh pledged himself to make Abraham great and powerful, to do for him whatever she wished. He sent much gold and silver to Abraham and diamonds and pearls, sheep and oxen, and men slaves and women slaves, and he assigned a residence to him within the precincts of the royal palace. A nearly contemporary account of what it was like to be favored by Pharaoh describes the splendid things showered upon the one favored, including royal linen, myrrh, a host of servants in a sumptuous house with exquisite woodwork and a garden, and meals furnished by the palace cooks. Abraham's attitude toward such gifts would readily be readily deduced from his flat refusal years later to accept anything from another wicked monarch, the fawning king of Sodom. Pharaoh's gifts to Abraham, coming from the abductor of his wife, would surely have been immediately refused were it not for the unique position Abraham and Sarah found themselves in due to God's strange command. With Sarah in the palace, Abraham could hardly have afforded to incur Pharaoh's displeasure with possible consequence for Sarah. Moreover, such a refusal on Abraham's part might have raised suspicions about Abraham's real relationship with Sarah in a manner inconsistent with God's commandments. These were gifts that Abraham was required to accept, although, as Jewish tradition insists, the blessings really came from God. Pharaoh was merely the instrument through whom God bestowed the blessings on Abraham. Abraham's sole concern, meanwhile, was the welfare and protection of his beloved Sarah. Viewed in retrospect, however, his residence in the royal palace may well have proven of great benefit. He was there for two years, associating with the most learned men of the realm and learning the Egyptian language and lore, so well that he would use them as a vehicle to write for his posterity what we now have as the precious book of Abraham. Not only Pharaoh, but all of his household were inflicted with punishments and plagues, which only increased and intensified over the next two years. Nor could the royal magicians or physicians or healers, so famed for their curative powers, help the ailing king, for when they tried they themselves became afflicted. All of Egypt would have been alarmed at the crisis of their king, on whose welfare was thought to rest the welfare of the entire realm and even the constitutional uh, continuation of the cosmic order. The solution came when it was Pharaoh's turn to have a dream, which showed Abraham lying his hands on the monarch's head and healing him. Abraham's healing of Pharaoh is likewise attested in Samaritan and Turkish tradition. So only this foreigner could cure the mighty Pharaoh. In one of the great turnabouts of history, the life of Pharaoh and all of that theoretically depended on him were literally in Abraham's hands. Abraham on Pharaoh's Throne As the story continues in the Genesis Apocryphon, Abraham relates that Pharaoh's messenger came to me and asked me to come and pray for the king and lay my hands upon him so that he would recover. Abraham would have been fully justified in refusing this nearly incredible request to save the man whom had forcibly taken Sarah and had been ready to kill Abraham. Had not Pharaoh brought this trouble on himself? Indeed, was it not divine punishment for his arrogant crimes against the Lord's anointed? And given Pharaoh's rapidly declining health, Abraham could easily have opted to wait out the king's imminent demise and then simply taken Sarah and left Egypt a vindicated man. But Abraham was of a different stuff. As the rabbi said, he lived the whole law before it had been revealed. As part of the divine law, it as it would be revealed through the mortal Messiah, would be the command to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
Widely known by most Christians as the most difficult part of Christ's gospel, it is practiced perfectly by Abraham, who could not refuse his archenemy's request to bless and heal him. When Pharaoh's messenger had requested Abraham's help, Lot divulged that Sarah was really Abraham's wife and would have to be restored to him before he could help. Summoning Abraham to his side, the alien Pharaoh chided Abraham and pled with him, What have you done to me? Here is your wife. Take her away. But now pray for me and for my household that this evil spirit may be banished from us. Thus, observes Nibley, the roles of victim and victor are almost ludicrously reversed, showing that for all his pride and power, Pharaoh is merely the pretender to Abraham's patriarchal authority. Using that authority, Abraham complied with Pharaoh's request. I prayed that he might be cured, says Abraham in the Genesis Apocryphon. As recorded in the Asatir, an important Samaritan source, Abraham begged for mercy for the king and prayed for the loosening of his bonds, saying, O Lord, God of heaven and earth, all merciful, be merciful. Then says, Genesis, uh, then says Abraham in the Genesis Apocryphon, I laid my hands upon his head. The plague was removed from him, the evil spirit was banished from him, and he recovered. Islamic legend likewise remembers that Abraham cured Pharaoh. The wonderful thing about Abraham, says Nibli, is that he always does the right thing, whether anybody else does or not. Not only was Pharaoh healed, but also all of his household, explains the Esatir. Then, continues the Genesis Apocryphon, the king got up and proceeded to give Abraham many gifts, beyond the lavish riches and flocks he already had bestowed on Abraham. To Sarah, the king gave much silver and gold and many clothes of fine linen and purple, and also Hagar, a beautiful girl who was one of the king's many daughters as a servant. The unfolding of events was, in the words of Church Father Christostrom, marvelous and surprising, for a woman dazzling in her beauty is closeted with an Egyptian, king and tyrant of such frenzy and inconsistent disposition, and yet she leaves his presence untouched, with her peerless chastity intact. Then, according to the medieval Turkish historian, Pharaoh seated Abraham on a throne. The event is pictured in facsimile 3 of the Book of Abraham showing that the throne was Pharaoh's own, the splendidly magnificent throne of Egypt where Abraham is sitting by the politeness of the king. Appropriately, it was because it was probably the lion throne. Emphasizing Abraham's remarkable rise years earlier from the Egyptian lion altar of death to the most exalted seat in Egypt, reflecting, says Hugh Nibley, the broad outlines of the royal ritual enacted throughout the ancient Near East at the New Year's drama, an indispensable element of which was the temporary humiliation of the true king while a rival and substitute displaces him on the throne. And as the New Year's drama were, the true king is always vindicated in the end. So it is with Abraham when Pharaoh ends up acknowledging that superior power and priesthood of his rival. The scene is the ultimate vindication of Abraham and his patriarchal authority to establish Zion on earth. In a momentous event unique in history, Pharaoh, pretender to that authority, and ruler of the mighty kingdom that was but an imitation of the order of Zion, willingly steps down from his throne to defer to Abraham. No wonder that to the ancients, says scholar Ben Zion Wachholder, the encounter between Pharaoh and the traveler from Ur of the Chaldees seems as a crucial event in the history of mankind. Abraham's rise from the altar of death to the exalted throne of Egypt foreshadowed his own destiny when he would inherit his heavenly throne, the throne mentioned in the Testament of Isaac and in Latter-day Revelation. And as with Abraham, so also with his fruitful posterity, who will likewise inherit thrones prepared for them by Christ. 
who would descend below all things in order to rise above all and sit on his exalted throne forever. As Abraham sat on Pharaoh's throne, according to facsimile number three of the book of Abraham, he reasoned upon the principles of astronomy. Josephus tells that Abraham conversed with the most learned of the Egyptians, whence his virtue and reputation became still more conspicuous. He introduced them to arithmetic and transmitted to them the laws of astronomy. Jewish tradition adds that the court members even brought their children to be instructed, and that Abraham began his preaching with the words, Blessed be God, who created the sun, the moon, and the planets. Such language would have established common ground with his listeners and been practically, particularly appropriate in context, for the lion throne on which he was sitting symbolized Pharaoh's role as heir to the creator God. Abraham would be qualified to enlighten Pharaoh's court on astronomy, is as much a miracle as was his healing of Pharaoh. For of all the accomplishments of ancient Egypt, none was more significant or renowned than its advancements in astronomy, a science central to sacred Egyptian ritual and architecture. In fact, the first of Pharaoh's many titles used by his courtiers was Lord of the Sky. The title reflected the fact that the king's highest eternal aspirations were linked to the stars, among which he desired one day to take his place with his predecessors who had already been transformed into the imperishable stars, that is, the circumpolar stars that never set in the northern sky. And here the imagery of the cedars converges with that of the stars, for while Pharaoh is frequently depicted with upraised arms supporting the star-studded heavens, other texts describe the sky as a huge tree overshadowing the earth, the stars being the fruits or leaves which hang from its branches. When the gods perch on its boughs, they are evidently identified with the stars. With what amazement Pharaoh and his court must have listened to Abraham as he explained things no other mortal could about the starry heavens, things that he had learned directly from the Creator. According to Eupolemus, Abraham explained astronomy and other sciences to them and taught them much, but attributed the discovery of them to Enoch. The historian Artapanus, writing centuries before Josephus, is even more specific in a painting of Abraham as the mentor of the Egyptian pharaoh, personally teaching him astronomy. Abraham was teaching the knowledge of Enoch, of Zion, to Egypt's mighty monarch and his learned court. The picture that emerges is that of Abraham as a pivotal contributor to the origins of culture and learning, as he plays a crucial part in the generation and transmission of Near Eastern learning. And in all his teachings, his narratives brought people closer to God. Abraham's grand purpose was not scholarly interchange or demonstration of knowledge, but to bring his fellow beings to their creator. Thus, while Abraham taught the Egyptians, as suggested by Marky Peterson, he utilized this opportunity as a means of proclaiming the name of Christ. A Turkish source tells that Abraham taught the true and uh, taught the faith and true religion, and adds that the king was converted. As told by a Samaritan source, Pharaoh believed in the truth of the faith of Abraham, for Pharaoh knew that his prayer before the idols had not cured him from the plague which he had, but that only the prayer of Abraham to his God had cured him. And at a, that time he commanded the destruction of the houses wherein the idols were, and the breaking of the idols and the destruction of all the pillars. If this tradition is accurate or even close, the ensuing effect would have uh, crescendoed throughout the vast kingdom of Egypt in a manner similar to the widespread conversions experienced among the Lamanites after the conversion of King Lamoni and his father. The extent of Abraham's missionary success, even in his lifetime, may be vastly greater than that for which he is normally given credit. 
Abraham's sojourn in Egypt, says Jewish tradition, was of great service to the inhabitants of the country because he demonstrated to the wise men of the land how empty and vain their views were. And as Abraham sat high on Pharaoh's throne teaching the knowledge of Zion in the cosmos, he was drawing from his store of revealed knowledge that, as according to John Taylor speaking in 1880, exceeded all the combined wisdom of the world today. Surely it is no different today, except that Abraham's Latter-day Seed are fast approaching the day when, as John Taylor foretold on another occasion, Zion will be as far ahead of the outside world in everything pertaining to learning of every kind as we are today in regard to religious matters. It is all part of what Isaiah foretold. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, 2-3.